Thank you, Devin and Angela. That was amazing as usual. Last week it was fun seeing Devin get baptized at Central Campus. And uh, what, a, what a privilege we have of getting to see the boys be baptized this morning. It's always a fun time for the family of Christ when we get to see those things firsthand. I am often asked why uh, it is that I preach, why did I go into the ministry and as most of you have been able to discern by now, it is not because of any native intelligence or abilities. It's not because of education. Um, it's a life's path that began because of being saved from the world. And that's the focus of what we're talking about this morning is the world. It's a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John, and since we can take, I think, with a high degree of certainty that these words recorded here in this Gospel are the words of Jesus Christ himself, then we can assume uh, and take it as truth that the use of certain words, phrases, and so forth are the words that Christ himself used. We see Christ focused on uh, the world in several passages. We see it in John chapter 3, where it says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, right? Most of us, if you've been a believer in Christ uh, for any length of time, have memorized that. But if you go a little bit further down, he says, Jesus wasn't sent to condemn the world, but to save it to himself. Uh, that made a huge impact on me as a young believer. Uh, I knew that I had been saved from the world. Now, unfortunately, there are way too many believers in Christ that uh, are raised in more or less a Christian culture that feel like at times they need saved from Christianity. Uh, having worked with young people as long as I have, I've seen far too many kids raised in the church who kind of have the been there, done that attitude about Christianity. Uh, and they want to have the experiences that their friends are having, uh, which they view as having fun, by living in the world. Whether that's drinking or drug use or uh, sex outside of marriage, uh, you can just go down a list. Uh, I had one guy that was on staff at Parkview, a godly man, wonderful man, but he shared with me his testimony that uh, he went to the University of Iowa having grown up in Iowa City, and he felt gypped because he was here with the people from his church community, and he didn't feel like he could really explore having a good time in college. So he transferred to a different school, farther away from his parents. He wanted to have those opportunities. Thankfully, he didn't explore those too much. But for those of us who grew up in non-Christian homes, who had our fill of the world, uh, who understand all too clearly that when John talks about the world, what it is exactly he's referencing, uh, we don't want to go into the world. In fact, it's everything that we can do to get rid of aspects of the world from our life. It's like we've gotten stuck in tar, and we do our best to remove that tar from us, and it's a constant battle. Pride, anger, fear, uh, habits of the flesh. And we find it almost impossible to completely rid ourselves of that old lifestyle. 
how many men, how many women have I met who become believers later in life who still obviously grapple with those issues and they would do anything if they could to have the kind of life that people who grow up in the church seem to have. When I married my wife, she was one of those who had grown up in the church and I, I often marvel at the lack of temptation that she feels in certain areas, the lack of wrestling with uh, problems that I wrestle with. And I think, boy, if I could just change places with her. But that's not in God's sovereign will. God uses all of us. That's not his plan. What we do know is that as Jesus references the world, it is referring to that system. It's not just people, but it's a system run by Satan himself designed to be in exact opposition to everything else that God wants to do. It's, in fact, uh, designed to keep us in enslavement, darkness, keep us blind to the things of Christ, those things that are most important. If we look at John chapter 15, uh, we see that the world exists in opposition to Christ himself. Uh, it's quoted here in 15 verse uh, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me, that is Jesus, before it hated you. There is a pattern here. The world hated Jesus. We know that. We know the whole story of Christ. Christ lived his life. He did ministry for three years. He was eventually betrayed by one of his own people who was acting like the world. And he was led to the cross after uh, examination. And he was affixed to it with nails. And he gave his life for the world. And Jesus says, the world hates me. And because they hate me, if you identify yourself as a believer in Christ, the world will hate you. He says, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, uh, because I chose you from the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So when we think about the world... And we think about it in reference here to John chapter 17 in that first verse that Angela read, verse 16. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. We as believers are not supposed to be still in that mind frame of the world. It's a constant lifestyle change to separate ourselves in some ways from the ways that we used to be. The world... Well, by definition, as I said earlier, the world is defined as those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They don't act like it. They don't think that way. It's alien to them. But in fact, the Word of God portrays it that we, those of us who are believers in Christ, are the aliens in this world. We do not belong. The more that we belong, the more that we know that we are having a problem in our Christian walk. We should be above, beyond, uh, extraordinary, an exception to the world. In no way should we still identify the way that we used to as one of the world. John makes it so clear, you're not of the world. You're not supposed to be part of the world. What does the world stand for in the Gospel of John as Jesus uses it? Well, the world stands in denial in suppression of truth, of the truth of God. Uh, it does not understand. So when we live our Christian life, when we're 
celebrating certain things in Christ, when we do baptisms, when we have communion, the world doesn't understand it. Uh, the early church was criticized by uh, thinkers in the Roman Empire because they believed that and took literally our act of communion as having actually killed someone and eaten their flesh and drank their blood. And it makes no sense to them. We flip-flop our identity and our allegiances so that those things which the world most admires we don't, and those things which the world doesn't want to be, we ascribe to be. Uh, we talked last week about celebrity. Uh, Jesus was a celebrity, but we have our own in the world rankings of celebrities, people who are living for their flesh, people who are living for fame, for fortune, for position, and as Christians, we really don't pay that much attention to it. That is not our goal in life. We have a celebrity. We have the Son of God. And that's the only thing that we need. Um, the more we live our lives, the more we make decisions for Christ, the more the world struggles to know what exactly to do with us. Don Carson, a professor at Trinity Seminary, says, Christians cannot think of themselves as intrinsically superior to the world. They are ever conscious that by nature they are to the world objects of wrath but having been chosen out of this world having been drawn by the messiah's love into a group uh, referred to as the messiah's own which is what we are as believers who are still in the world we are found as aliens we have an alien status like ufos appearing suddenly in the sky so the person who is a believer crashes into our society into our spheres of influence. Whether you're at work or in your family or you're doing something else in your life, when you come into that circle, you are an alien. You're bringing a message that is not knowable by the world except that someone tells them, except the church itself has a witness in that part of society. Uh, when I worked at the phone company, I remember I was working at the South Omaha Phone Center. I was just in college, and I was helping put boxes of phones on shelves. And the lady who was uh, helping me with this, she was up on a step stool, and I was handing her a box, and she was putting them in the right order. And she turned around suddenly, and she looked at me, and she said, Why, Dave, are you looking at my legs? And I was like, What? <laughs> First of all, this lady was like 50-something. <laughs> Second of all, no, I'm not. And then she went on to say, well, that's okay. My boyfriend is a pastor, and he says that that's just natural for men. And I, I remember being very zealous, you know, as I was, uh, and just saying something like, well, God didn't give us eyes to lust with. You know, in fact, we're supposed to pluck out our right eye if it gives offense. And I thought about giving her an object lesson on the moment, but I didn't do that. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's just, it's just different. That's how the world thinks. They're constantly measuring, evaluating, trying to decide if this is the way that life should be. Uh, many of you can give testimony to the time that after you became believers that your family and friends struggled to understand what it is exactly that you did. Why are you so different now than the way that you used to be? In fact, what we're really asking is, how are you different from them? And can they do things with you like they used to do? Through time, through the centuries, the church has dealt with the world in different ways. Uh, Christ says that we're not of the world, but he's not going to take us out of the world. 
We have to stay in it in John 17. We have a purpose by being in the world. That's the place that we're supposed to be right now uh, and doing our mission. And yet, the churches say, well, how do we do that without becoming like the world? I want to be more Christ-like. And so we have a spectrum as we look at church history. On one hand, the church has separated itself from the world. Uh, and on the other hand, it has decided, well, I'll be as much like the world as I can be so that I might have a message with the world and might be accepted by the world. When I became a new believer, I got into this spectrum. Um, my girlfriend's family, which would eventually be my wife, her dad was my pastor. And as a new believer, all I knew was that Christ wanted to be my friend, that he died on the cross for me, that I had asked him to forgive me for my sins. But then I soon learned there's a whole other ethical situation in Christianity I was totally unaware of. Um, her, her dad was a graduate of Bob Jones University. So there was no drinking, there was no dancing, there was not, you couldn't go to movies, you weren't supposed to wear facial hair, and the list went on and on. And I remember asking all the time very uncomfortable questions in that home. Why? Where in the Word does it say that? I mean, boy, if it says that, I want to do it 100%. Uh, show me where it says you can't go to movies. And of course, Dad was very patient with me and said, well, of course, movies weren't invented when the Gospels were written, so he'd try to give me his rationale. But then, being ornery like I am, I would come home from a date with Ion, and he'd be in his bathrobe sitting in the living room watching his favorite TV show, Hawaii Five-0 or Gunsmoke or something like that. And I would say, well, Dad, I don't... I'm, I'm confused. You're watching a Hollywood production, but you won't go to movies. Why? And so we were always dancing that fine line. I, I, he started putting little journals into my hands, uh, little magazines, things like Sword of the Lord by John R. Rice and other publications that were so popular in his day, which really held to a separation of the world from Christianity. That's called separatism. That's one end of the spectrum. I went to a Bible college, and I had to sign a document, at least they wanted me to, that said I wouldn't do any of the things that I just mentioned. And I remember talking to the dean of students and saying, I don't know that I can sign this. I mean, if you show me again where it's supported scripturally, I'd be happy to. And I remember the dean, very wise man, said to me, I'll tell you what, Dave, when you are convicted by the Holy Spirit, that you should obey these things, then come back to my office and sign it. And I did. I waited two years. But I remember sitting in a chapel one day at school, and I remember feeling like God was saying to me, you came here voluntarily. No one forced you to go to school here. So if this is their rules, whether they can support them or not from Scripture, it's up to you to obey them. So I trotted on down to his office, and I signed the piece of paper, and for the next two years, I lived in obedience to those rules, never understanding them, never really fully supporting them, but at least I thought that this is what God wanted me to do. And as we go through that spectrum, we come over to another side where it seems like the distinctions of our Christianity are so watered down that it's hard for the world to even notice that there's a difference. There are some believers who live their life totally in conformity to everyday life. It's just that they are Christians. They may go to church on a Sunday. Uh, they might 
actually financially support the church, but they don't really live their lives in contrast to the world. And Jesus has the perfect answer for that. He's like, well, so where should we be in balance? How does the believer live a life in the world without becoming part of the world? And if we look back at Matthew chapter 5 in, the, in, in Christ's great teaching on that Sermon on the Mount, he tells us there's really two things that we as believers should do and be in a lost world. First one is that we're supposed to be salt, right? We as believers should be flavoring, preserving this world, giving them something to taste other than the everyday despair and darkness that they experience. Now, you might be like me and saying, well, I know a lot of people in the world who are not believers and their lives are far cry from despair. They live in some of the nicest homes, they're so well respected and so forth. But what we know is that in the pursuit of that kind of lifestyle, people still aren't happy. They're still not contented because we know what they're really pursuing is God. If they were so happy, then why are their lives such a mess? Why is there so many uh, husbands and wives in one family? Why are there children in rebellion and dying of drug addiction and so forth? And we say, well, that's the world. But then there's those people who live kind of like the world, but they're still believers, and we still struggle with some of those things, don't we? And so trying to find out how we can stay in a way that we flavor the world without becoming the world is the hard part. Salt wasn't nearly as common in Jesus' day as it is in ours. I mean, we can go into any restaurant right now in North Liberty, and we'll find every table has a little salt shaker. Salt is in great abundance in our culture. In Jesus' day, it was a commodity. Not as expensive as like gold or jewelry or so forth, but it was something that you didn't just cast upon the ground willy-nilly. You had to respect it. Salt was something that you could put on foods and products to keep them fresh. It was the ancient answer to the refrigerator. So salt had a distinctive purpose. So when Jesus says, be salt to the world, add flavor to it. Really, his only warning is, don't let it be cast upon the ground. Don't let it be trampled. Don't let it lose its flavor by not treating it as something special. Salt is something that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to preserve the teachings of Christ, the way of life of the Christian. We're supposed to be that distinctly alien presence in the life of those who are living their everyday life so that we can flavor the world. So they stop and say, wow, this is salty. This is different. To have a conversation with you is something like I've never experienced before. You really are causing me to stop and think. And in fact, we're a repository of all things Christian. If we're preserving anything, we're preserving the way of Christ, how he lived, how he taught, what his lifestyle was like. And we as a church are supposed to be doing the same thing. The second thing that Jesus tells us to do is be light. Now, in Christ's metaphor of light and darkness, the world is always in darkness. They didn't have a clue of how to work salvation. They couldn't get closer to God if they wanted to. The light comes in and we bring with us a message that shines and illuminates the will of God in the lives of people. Understanding that the edge-to-edge -edge darkness of what it's like to live in the world is a step that we as believers always have to be convinced of. 
In my mom's family, I think I've shared with you guys many times, no believers, but very moral people. And there's different reasons why that was probably true. But in the life that I was, grew up in, in East Omaha, with the different babysitters that we had, there was darkness. There was profound darkness. There was pain. Um, it was a time of continual tears. People so lost, so looking for answers, and yet rejecting the obvious answers of God. They needed people to live out the Christian life. That's what it means to be the light. We take the light of Christ, it's transferred to us, and we live that light among the people that we have fellowship with and, and knowledge of. The world is drawn to this light like moths to the flame. After I became a believer in high school, I had been locked in darkness my whole life. Uh, it seemed to me that the world was a very unfriendly place. Uh, I was continuously in fights, all those things that I've told you previously. And yet, almost it seemed like overnight, people, people who were in the past totally ignoring me, uh, didn't want anything to do with me, were coming to me and asking advice. These are high schoolers. And they would say, Dave, I'm having this problem with this. Or that. And I'm thinking, what has happened? I mean, at the end of school last year, uh, you would have walked by me and said something really nasty. You would have uh, wanted to you know, get into a punching match or something. And now you're sitting down to ask me some of the most intimate and real questions of your life. I was in senior study hall, and I had a good friend uh, Russell, and we sat and just read through the Bible together. And people start coming up to you, and they notice that there's a difference. That's what it means to be light. No matter who you are, when we walk with Christ, the world notices. Sometimes they're coming to look for answers. Sometimes they're coming in anger. We got to be ready for both. And Jesus tells us with this light that we have that it's an effort of the will no one else can dim your light as a believer. It's your effort to dim your light. And that's the sad part. When I talked about that spectrum, some people dim their light to the extent, just so that they can be seen like the world, that no one even knows that they're believers. Uh, how many times have I shared my faith with someone only to have them say, well, I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. And they give me a very authentic testimony for how they became a believer as a young person. But then when we explore things, we realize that that was long ago. That their life in the present has no relationship to what they experienced as a child. There's no distinction, and their friends have no knowledge of the fact that there is something alien about them. As you look at Jesus' life and the way that he lived his life, remember in this prayer in John 17, he's praying before his disciples. He's letting them listen in to his time of intimacy with his father and he's beginning and going to continue to pray for them specifically he understands and expects that these men are going to live their life in such a way that they can never again be comfortable in the world it's not a place where we should try to get along and be like it's a place where we should stand for christ and because the world hates christ they will hate us i said last week if we have not experienced that opposition we probably should examine our lives. How are we living for Christ? How are we making other people uncomfortable? Uncomfortable in their sin? It's a tough deal. So we dim our light. Uh, Jesus says, well, don't put your light under a bushel basket. 
It's not that the world puts a bushel basket on top of our light, but it's like we do it ourselves so that we are not casting too bright a light and being too distinct and too separatistic from the world. We look at that branch of Christianity and we say, I don't want to be like those guys. <laughs> I don't want to have to stop dancing and going to movies or doing what other crazy things that they're doing. I mean, you look at the old world Amish and that's exactly what they're doing. They're living a separatistic lifestyle so that the people know that they're different from everyone else. But unfortunately, in such a lifestyle, they are keeping their witness suppressed. Uh, people aren't naturally drawn to them to hear the answers to life. And so we swing way over here, and in so doing, sometimes we dim our light. We put a bushel basket on top of that. We should be like those little birthday cake candles that you do to play jokes on your kids. You know, put them on the cake, and they blow it out, and it looks like the candle's out, when all of a sudden it just comes right back to life. It just keeps doing that as often as you do it. And pretty soon everybody in the room realizes this is a joke. This candle, no matter how hard we blow, is never going to go out. We'll have to just take it out and we have to put it in the water or pull the wick out or do whatever. That's the way the Christian should be. We experience all kinds of things in our daily living. And the pressure is to blow out that flame. Uh, and we all take shots. Uh, when I first carried my Bible to school, I wanted to be a witness for Christ. And the first guy that asked me says, is that a Bible? I was like, yeah. He says, why are you carrying a Bible? And I knew the answer was supposed to be because I just became a believer and I want to share with you my story. But instead I said, well, because I'm taking Greek and we're studying the Bible. And I walked away about five feet and I just wanted to fall on the floor and die. Because it's like, wow, you coward. And I was telling my Bible study guys later that night what I did. And they were like, well, we've all done something like that. Don't give up. Tomorrow's a new day. And sure enough, about a week later, I had a chance to see the same guy, and I just walked up to him and said, you know what? Please forgive me. I lied to you. I am taking Greek, but we're not studying the Bible. We're studying Homer's Iliad. But I carry my Bible because I'm a believer, and I just started going into my testimony. See, my candle went out for just a second. But like that ornery birthday candle, it just flew back up. And the more I did that, the more use I got to that. And I stopped putting that bushel basket over my head. Some might even argue it was too much. Some people who are on this side of the spectrum would say, well, Dave, you're an embarrassment. I, I don't want to be known as your type of Christian. I had a guy actually tell me that one time on campus in college. He says, you're the most obnoxious Christian I know. And I said, that's true, I'm sure. However, you're the most invisible Christian I know. Somewhere in the middle there is a happy medium, I'm sure. But we have to keep that candle burning. Christ says the world is trapped in darkness. Do you know that? Do you feel that? They're looking for answers. Oh, they, they bluster and they, they act angry and... They put up laws and rules against what it means to be a believer and how you can live your life. Let's make sure that we're protesting for the right things. We want to have the opportunity to let our light shine in their darkness. We want to be the people that love them to Christ. It's so hard. It's so hard. But when we fail, when we're not successful, 
remember, that little candle just can blaze right up again. Because Christ, who is the ultimate light of this world, I am the way, the truth, and the light, he says in this gospel. He is the one whose light never goes out. We can go back to him, uh, if you will, and we get reignited, refired up. That's really what church should be. We should be getting together so that our candles are burning fiercely by the time that we leave. I've been with the believers. I've been with the body. I've heard the word of God preached. We've sung great songs of praise to tribute to Jesus. Got to see young men taking steps of faith, of baptism. If that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what will. We took communion as a group. We identified as those who are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go back to work this week. I'm going to go back out into that dark world that is looking for answers, that needs salt, they need light, and I'm going to be obedient to Christ, and I'm going to do exactly that. I had a serviceman over this week, I've had many, as we've moved into our new home, and he's just putting in, uh, I can't remember what he was putting in, something, and I, we just got to talking, and it just always amazes me is how freely people who have no knowledge of me prior to this, who probably won't ever see me again, will start sharing their more intimate details about their kids, the divorce, the fact that they don't get to see them enough, how rotten they feel as a dad, and man, how different a life God can make someone. We have opportunities every time we turn around to be salt and light. We're looking for that balance. We don't want to be part of the world as my father-in-law used to say, we don't want to be sooty because we've been playing in the coal bin, which is how he referred to Christians who got too far into the world. But on the other hand, we don't want to dim our light so much that the world doesn't realize how distinct we are. It's no easy life to be a believer, to do this well. We'll make mistakes, we fail, we purposely fail. At times, you look at the, the 12 as we read through the Gospels, time after time, they make mistakes. They don't know what they're doing, and even when they do, they don't do it well. Jesus is patient. He's kind. He's compassionate. He understands. He says, go for it again. It doesn't matter if you're 12 years old or if you're in your 80s. Jesus is patient with us. If this hasn't been your lifestyle up to this point, start it today. Get back there. Do something. Uh, you know, we talk all the time about the need to serve in children's ministry in this church. I can't think of a greater thing that has more eternal impact than influencing young people, whether you're helping with the junior high, senior high at Central Campus, or if you're doing children's here, you have the opportunity to shine your light, the light of Christ, into the lives of these young people who are looking for authenticity, who are looking for the integrity. They're trying to figure out what it means to live for Christ. Yes, they see what their family says, but they want to know that there are others who do the same thing. Perhaps it's sharing on your child's sports team or getting involved in some activity that they're in, dance or so forth, but maybe it's something you can do with the people of your own age. Whatever it is, Ask Christ, how can I be salt today? Every morning, we should wake up saying, where am I going to be a light? I have to first kind of chip away a little of the wax from my candle by being in the Word of God to get fired up again, to get that strength. 
But once I pray and once I'm in the Word all day long, and it's not just because I'm a pastor. This was true of my life before I became a pastor. I'm looking for what God might have me say or do today to be a witness for him. I remember way too clearly what it was like not to have that hope. I remember waking up in such a feeling of despair, of knowing that there really wasn't going to be anything better today, that no one cared, that life was horrible that all I can remember imagine is that there are thousands just right around me in my new neighborhood who feel the same way how am I going to be a salt and how am I going to be a light to them today if the day ends and I haven't had an opportunity to do that with someone it's not been the best day in my opinion because that is why we're here this brings us back right into John 17 these last two verses in this section that we read today uh, when Jesus is praying, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. What is the world? He's not referring to the globe. He's not referring to the round planet. He's referring to that world system controlled by Satan, that place of darkness, that place that is flavorless. So I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself. The word to consecrate here is the word that we commonly translate as being holy, set apart. Jesus says, I am devoted to God. And I believe this is the same word that is translated in the Old Testament as devoted, meaning that it is a sacrifice. When you bring a bull or a turtle dove to the high priest, uh, and you're asking for a sacrifice for atonement of sins, you bring an object that can be consecrated to God. It had to fit certain criteria in order for it to be a worthy sacrifice. Jesus says, I'm going to be that sacrifice. I'm going to make things possible and right for all of mankind, for the, this world. And he says, so I consecrate myself. Why? That they also they, referring to you and me, and his disciples specifically, may be sanctified in truth. It's the same word, it's consecrated in the original. It's the same word. We are supposed to be sacrificial to this world that we live in. Oh, man, doesn't that make a difference? How you live your life? I'm supposed to be a sacrifice as well? I'm supposed to be one that gives up those things that the world offers me in exchange for me being pure in my testimony, pure in my lifestyle for Christ. I'm supposed to sacrifice those things. I'm supposed to give my life for Christ like Jesus gave his life for us. And the answer, of course, is yes. Jesus fully has in mind the mission that the 12 are going to start, the 11 at this point, as they get ready to go into the book of Acts and we see the story unfold with the coming of the Holy Spirit and how those 11 take the mission that Jesus has given them and they begin to spread it first in Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. That commission is still on us. Even though there's 2,000 years that separate us from this prayer by Christ, he has us in mind, believe it or not. When he's praying this, I consecrate myself. We'll see this later as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying 
Father, let this cup pass from me if it's your will. But since it isn't, I give myself fully to the agony and the pain of self-sacrifice for this lost world. And he fully expected, and it worked out to be so, that these men would each one of them give their lives for Jesus Christ. They would live them fully for him. And the story of the Christian church is over and over and over. People decide to be salt and light, and they experience the hatred, the alienation, and sometimes ultimately the sacrifice of what it means to live for Christ. But in so doing, that little candle is burning bright. Burning bright for a testimony for Jesus. Uh, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a great person. I'm not someone that has a lot of skills or education or talent. No, what you have is the same spirit in you that I have and that the 11 have here that Jesus asked for you to have. What we do know, and we've talked about it throughout this prayer, is that now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he prays for you and he prays for me. And this is his prayer, that for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified, sacrificed, if you will, in truth. You have something that the world is literally dying to hear. Let's not withhold it from them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, it is our heart's desire to please you, to worship you, to be a light for you. Father, each of these people have a different opportunity, a custom-made way by your Holy Spirit to be salt and light in a world that is desperate for answers. So I pray, Father, that for each one of us, we will be obedient and we'll do what you call us to do. And Father, when we fail, and we do, and we will, I pray, Father, that we would come running back to you. Embarrassed? Yes. Ashamed? Possibly. But willing, Father, to be honest with you and to ask for the strength that tomorrow it may be different. Tomorrow I may have the opportunity, the great privilege of sharing truth with a world that is lost. Oh, Father, lead those people to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.